In the American South prior to the Civil War, enslavers wanted to feed their captives as cheaply as possible, and the least costly way of doing so was to give them waste foods from the plantation. I mean, slaves needed nourishment, right? To make it through the backbreaking labor, they needed, they needed uh, nourishment, but they only had a few ingredients typically on hand. Beans, greens, cornmeal, and usually you know, parts of, of pork, primarily. And so what they did is they took what they had in that horrible situation and they transformed it into what would become one of the most celebrated culinary traditions of American culture. What am I referring to? Soul food, right? Where have you had the very best soul food? Has anybody been to the Busy Bee Cafe in Atlanta, by chance? Or the or Bully's Restaurant in Jackson, Mississippi? Or Lucretia's Kitchen in Louisville? Here's a picture from Lucretia's Kitchen. You know, soul food is it's delicious, isn't it? And it was the food of the poor. It was the food of the weak, the, the, the desperate. And yet, all these many years later, soul food kind of serves as, as actually a bridge, a, a common point of delight between blacks and whites that we can share together, even if right now the surrounding cultural context makes that difficult. You know, it's it's the bread of affliction, the food of affliction, that serves as the, the common point of delight as the, as the food uh, today. Well, in the same way, you know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the elements, the common elements of the Passover meal, the, the bread and the cup, and he used that as a prediction of his death on the cross. And then when he was speaking over the final cup in the, the Passover ceremony, he said that this that my blood is resembling in this cup, it inaugurates a new covenant. And he's drawing upon Jeremiah 31, a new covenant that I am beginning, a whole new way of relating to God and being, knowing God and being known by God. And so he takes the most unspeakably horrible situation, you know, sin and suffering and a Roman cross, and he transforms it into what will become you know, one of the most celebrated institutions of the Christian church. We have right before me, right here, the Lord's Supper. You know, during time, through the time, during the years, <laughs> we've come up with different words, names to describe this meal. Some call it Holy Communion. Some call it the Mass. Some call it the Eucharist. But, you know, we could just as easily call it soul food. I mean, this is our soul's food. That's really what it is. You know, the Lord's Supper it's the food of survival. It's the food of the poor, the poor in spirit, the weak and the desperate. The Lord's Supper is, is also a point of, of common nourishment and delight in which people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the ages share, even if the surrounding social context and cultural structures fight against that union. And then around the Lord's table, you will find black, white, brown, tan, young, old, rich, poor, men and women, eating this family meal together. Uh, that was written up by um, an African-American pastor who I have a lot of respect for in the D.C. area. Um, Russ, I think his last name is, is Whitfield. And so that's what the supper is supposed to be. 
We have a passage today in 1 Corinthians 11 where the supper is being turned on its head, and it's definitely not being celebrated the way that it was intended. That's not what was happening in Corinth. So let's read beginning in verse 17. If you're just visiting with us today, we've been going through a sermon series in 1 Corinthians. We made it to chapter 11, and we get a passage where Paul's pretty ticked off. (laughs) He says, now in giving this instruction, verse 17, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be uh, factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry, while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Well, what should I say to you? Should I, should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Uh, This is why why many are, are, are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, we believe, help us in our unbelief. We we do believe that that the supper is our soul's food, and yet we don't really believe that. We don't truly believe that. Um, we believe that it, it is your grace to us that we receive, and yet we don't really believe that. And so help us. Come and, and show us the truth and lead us in a new path, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. <clears throat> okay, well, for centuries, the Lord's Supper has, has functioned as a symbolic meal, Uh, We don't have a full meal, do we? We receive a token amount of food. We receive a small piece of bread, a a, a sip of wine. It's basically a meal in miniature. But in the beginning of the church, and clearly here in Corinth, before there were church buildings, you know, worship was taking place in houses. And there was a, a full meal that was served, including special words that were said over a particular loaf in that meal and over a particular cup of wine. What Paul says is, when you guys share this meal, you are not 
sharing the Lord's Supper. Now, why did he say that? Well, the, the problem is, and I think you probably picked up on it as we were reading it, is that the full meal had become a sign of the social divisions that ran through the church. Uh, what we think our best reconstruction of the event is it seems as though the wealthy host uh, that probably owns the, the home where the church is meeting is inviting the important people to come and to join. Please come and join me in the, I, I think it's pronounced as the triclinium. The triclinium was the, basically the Roman formal dining room. And in the triclinium, we have room for about nine to 12 people to sit at the, the, the big boys' table, so to speak, where, you know, the elite members of the congregation can eat and be recognized as being at the top of the social uh, the hierarchy, while the poor members of the congregation, they're not eating in the triclinium. They're eating in these side rooms, or they're, they're eating in the middle of the atrium. They're eating in the places where the servants would be eating. Yeah, rich people in the dining room, poor people in the atrium, that kind of situation. In addition, the host would most likely provide some of the food, but people probably also brought their own food to supplement the meal. They would bring their own food and drink to share, but the food at the high table is really only being shared among the elite members of the congregation. The food is basically being shared within your own social class. So the rich people have their food. The poor people, if they have any food at all, remember they were, there were so many of them were slaves. So they may not have had, you know, money uh, to go out and buy much in the way of food. They were dependent upon their masters for their food. They oftentimes worked ungodly hours through the week. And so it may have been, might have been difficult for them to go to the marketplace and so they couldn't really contribute much to the common meal. Uh, they couldn't afford to do so. I want you to imagine this scenario. You have a church potluck with different tables, and you get to determine where you sit at the table based upon your tithing level to the church, right? So at the top tier uh, level, you know, the, the top tithers, they get to have the table with the filet mignon and, and the great $30 bottle of wine and, and all of that. The, the middle layer, the middle level givers, they get to have, you know, crock pot meatballs and green bean casserole. And then the lowest level gets like bread and, and a few bag of chips. Well, that's what's going on. And what's very clear is that in the triclinium, they've got good wine. Did you notice that? Because he says, some of you, some of you when you're eating this meal are getting drunk while others are going Hungry and Paul, he is just, you can see the smoke coming out of his ears at this moment. He says, Don't you dare call this the Lord's Supper. Like one gets drunk while the others get a few leftovers. It, it just shows the contempt you have for those who have nothing. And then he says, You caught this too, didn't you? That is why some of you have gotten sick and actually some of you have died. Like you can die eating this meal, is what he says. You know, in the Old Testament, you may remember once a year, the high priest would go into the temple, into the most sacred parts of the temple, into what was called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And there were so many instructions that the high priest had to follow when he was making his way into the Holy of Holies. He had to do it the right way and not do it the, the wrong way. Why? Because if you do it the wrong way, you die. And, and it seems almost like the Lord's Supper, like this is the Holy of Holies in the New Testament. 
You know, where else, where else do you find in the New Testament, if you do this and you do it in a scandalously bad way, you might die? Where else do we find that? No, hardly anywhere else. It's, it's that sacred. It's that special. It's that important. You know, and, and the reason it's that important is because Jesus Christ is present in this meal. Let's talk about the presence of uh, the Lord in the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's a chapel, or so I've been told, in Britain. Kind of funny. Uh, this little chapel in Britain. And above, above the Lord's table, there is a stained glass window. And in the stained glass window, is, it's depicting one of those moments in the Gospels when the women come to the empty tomb and they find that Jesus is, is gone and the angel makes the pronouncement, says the words, he is not here. And so the words, he is not here, are inscribed underneath, you know, the bottom of the stained glass window, which is directly above the Lord's t- supper table. So whenever a worshiper looks, looks at the communion t- table, you see the words, he is not here. And that is kind of how the vast majority of Americans, American Christians, treat this meal. He's not here. You know, Jesus is remembered, but Jesus is not in any way uniquely present. How can that be, though? If this is God's, God's meal, that Jesus would not show up for God's meal. It, the equivalent to that, it would be like, if you just think, imagine for a moment, your closest friend extends a dinner invitation for you, to, for you and a few others to come over to their house for dinner tonight. You accept the invitation, uh, not just because you want to have some good food, because you, you want to have good conversation with your friends at the table. You're, you arrive at the house and you find the door is cracked, so you walk in, and you find this dinner table that is beautifully set, and the food is already there, and, and there's a note on your, on your, your uh, plate, and it says, I hope you enjoy the dinner. I will not be present with you for the meal, but just remember all the good times we have shared together as you eat. Like, that would be a rather disappointing meal, wouldn't it? You, know, you would wonder, like, how is it that your friend could extend a dinner invitation to you but not show up at the, at the meal at all? That's the whole point, is that he would be there. If you know anything about church history, you know that we have uh, debated endlessly how Jesus is present at the meal. Uh, some have said that he is present in the elements themselves, that there is a supernatural transformation of the essence of the bread and the wine from bread and wine into body and blood in Christ. He's in, he is physically present in the elements. Uh, others have said that, that his body is present everywhere, and so his body can then uniquely be present. And so they say he's like in, with, and under the elements. Others say that, you know, his body is up in heaven, but the Holy Spirit unites two things which are uh, set apart in distance. And so the Spirit makes the connection between his body up there and his, his body and blood down here. We don't know how it happens. It is a mystery how it happens. But here's what I want you to realize. Since the beginning of the church, they believed they absolutely believed in receiving the body and blood of Jesus on Sundays. The church, it, it always gathered to receive the body and the blood. It, it, it only changed like four or five hundred years ago when Zwingli in Switzerland started to say, hey, there's no Jesus here. 
Really, where Jesus is primarily at is in the pulpit, on the sermons, on Sunday. We're going to put our emphasis on the pulpit. And this, you know, we can do it every once in a while and kind of remember Jesus. But for the whole rest of church history, they believed, they believed in the body and the blood. They believed in the body and the blood. It was always at the center. It, it, it wasn't the pulpit. It wasn't preachers getting up and preaching 30, 45, 60, 90-minute sermons. It, it was that we have a, a heavenly host who invites us to come, and he says, I will feed you. I will feed you with this soul food. And the thing is, is that people, that's why they went to church. People were excited to come and partake together in the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, if you're just showing up today and you haven't been with us through the previous chapter 10, I talked a little bit in that chapter about how how Paul makes the argument there is a real encounter with Jesus through the elements, that through the wine, there, he says, there is a real sharing or participation in the, the blood of Christ. And through the bread, there is a real sharing and participation in the body of Christ. We do it together. It's the way that we connect together when we connect together with him. I, I was listening to Francis Chan give a lecture on um, Preston Sprinkle's Raw Theology podcast on this topic. At, uh, uh, there was a conference that they did a few months ago, maybe a year ago or so, and he was, he was talking about, he's just so, what I appreciate about him, he's so passionate when he speaks. He's so, he's absolutely passionate about what he has to say. And, and he, he's standing in front of hundreds of people. He's talking on this, and he says, he says, this this has become like my favorite thing in the world to do. (laughs) Like sharing the body and the blood with my brothers and sisters is like my favorite thing on earth to do. Getting together with other believers and partaking, that that this becomes the center. And this is a guy who, you know, he's a great preacher and he he built mega churches and, and he, I mean, he could speak and he can make the pulpit so central, but he's like, just, you see this table at the center, and, and you say, when you see that table up front, it, you, that I am about to commune with the Almighty God. There is a participation and sharing between me and the divine, that a connection that happens to be at that table by faith, and I cannot believe that I get to do this. That's what he said. I cannot believe that God on a weekly basis, would allow me to, to do this. He said, if, if I told you that Jesus Christ right now was across the street and he's over there for about 30 minutes or so and he said, you can come over and you can touch my hand for just a second and then you can go, uh, how many of you would stay in this room <laughs> and not cross the street? He says, of course we would. No, you would go to touch Jesus. You would go to be near Jesus. Even just a few minutes in the presence of of Jesus would be, like, that would make you, would that make your week? I think it would. Would that make your year? Would that make your life? What what I notice about myself, I'm speaking to myself here. Um, When I, the way that I process my faith in Jesus, my relationship with Jesus is, 
oftentimes Jesus is a spiritual being who is up in heaven, and I do have a relationship, a personal relationship with him. I talk with him. I pray to him. I, I, I listen to him in, in his word. Uh, sometimes when I pray, I even imagine him being in the room with me, and that helps me focus and all of that. But, but, but I and virtually none of us, none of us process our relationship with Jesus along the lines of central to my faith is that I get to feed upon the body and blood of Jesus every week. Like, when do you ever hear us talk about faith in that way? We don't. We, central to my faith. Why do I go to church? I go to church for, for my friends, but I, I go to church for the body and the blood. I, I go to church because my soul is emaciated in this world that is so hard to have faith. And this is soul's food. This is my soul's food. Like, none of us talk that way. Maybe that, is that too, is it too Roman Catholic a, a way for us to talk? Um, and now, if you, I want to ask you this question. If you really believe that, would it make any difference in the way you thought about what we do here? Would it make any difference on how you think about Sunday? Would it, would it make any difference in, in how you just think about spiritual for formation or any of that because what what i am challenged to believe what i'm what i'm challenged to be reminded of the lord's supper reminds us that we live in a supernatural world we live in a supernatural world we need to be reminded that the world is charged with the grandeur of god and the grandeur of god is like breaking into the world through his son jesus christ and what jesus has said is you can share and participate in my body and blood every week. Um, I love how Dallas Willard, the professor at USC, said it. He said, Jesus died not simply to get you into heaven, but to get heaven into you. And one of the ways he does it, like the chief way he does it, is at this table. You know, that's why I prayed at the beginning of the sermon, like, Lord, we believe, (laughs) help our unbelief, because we kind of believe it, but we don't believe it. We don't, we don't believe it. But we don't believe that it's, it's truly as Jesus was at that upper, in the upper room with those original disciples at that Passover meal, at the original institution of the Lord's Supper. As truly as he was present with them then, he is present with us, his modern-day disciples today, when the Lord's Supper is served in local churches around the globe. We believe that, and we don't believe that. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Thirdly, <clears throat> You know, there was a part of this passage that focuses on our examination, the examination we're supposed to do as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 27. He says, So then, uh, whenever, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. And then he explains in verse 29 that the way that we incur judgment from God is to eat and drink without discerning the body. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. What is the body he's talking about? Uh, As you can imagine, that too has been debated endlessly down through the ages. There's multiple senses of body being used here. And what I want to suggest to you is it's, it's twofold, right? He's already spoken at length in the letter about how the church is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And that, but then he says that one loaf that we participate in makes us 
like one body. And so somehow for Paul, I don't, I don't profess to completely understand it, but somehow the two come together, that if you break the bread and all share it in the same way, like looking out for one another, that, that declares powerfully that we are one body. On the other hand, if you break the bread and divide the room and, and the guests are into different groups and some are eating here in luxury and others are getting scraps, you know, that powerfully communicates the opposite. So the body that we are to discern is both the body of the congregation, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and also the spiritual presence of Christ in the Eucharistic elements of the, the bread and the wine. The two, the two always go together. They belong, they belong together. And so to eat on, in an unworthy manner is actually to ignore this. You know, it's to eat in such a way that reinforces class distinctions and social hierarchies. Um, it's to eat in such a way to, to act upon our selfish impulses and to act entitled and focus on our own preferences and be heedless of the needs of, of other people. Why this is really important, because what I was taught when I was first challenged with this idea that we need to examine ourselves before the Lord's Supper, what I thought that meant is that we're supposed to have this little spiritual powwow session with the Holy Spirit, where we ask the Holy Spirit, basically, am am I holy enough to participate in the meal? Am I cleaned up enough to eat the bread and the wine? Am I... Am I living a a good enough Christian life to be able to come to the table? And I don't think that's what Paul's actually saying. Maybe the real questions we should be having with the Holy Spirit is, how are my relationships with the people in this room? Uh, Am I recognizing we as a body? Am am I looking out for my brother and sister and taking care of my brother and sister's needs? Do Do I really care about my brothers and sister's needs in this room? Am I committed to taking care of them and treating them um, the way that Christ would have me treat them? You know, from my understanding of church history, you know, in Scottish Presbyterian churches, and Presbyterianism comes out of of the Scottish, you know, tradition, right? And in many Scottish churches, they would only serve the Lord's Supper like once a year. And in that once a year serving, only about 15% of the congregation would partake because the rest of the congregation just did not feel like they were spiritual enough. They were holy enough. They were good enough to come and to participate and receive the bread and, and the body and the blood. And Paul is not saying that. He, he's not saying that you should, you should examine yourself and make sure your life is nice and cleaned up before you come to the table because this is the table for sick people. <laughs> This is the table for sinners. This is the, the table for failures. This is, the, this is the table for the weary and the wanderers and the sojourners. This is that table. It's the, this is the table for the needy. George, George Herbert, the English poet, the great poet, in his poem, Love Three, depicts a weary man coming to an inn, and the innkeeper is named Love, and the man feels that because of his guilt and his sin, he should leave the inn, he should depart in shame. But love says these beautiful words, <clears throat> quote, and know you not who bore the blame. And love, of course, in the poem is Jesus himself. And having, been, having silenced the guilt by pointing to the cross, love invites him again and says these words, quote, you must sit down and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. You must sit down and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat, is what love says 
to the person who feels like I, I don't measure up. Um, philosopher Simone Weil was an agnostic, but when she was reading Herbert's poem, when she was meditating on that poem, she said, Jesus' love became so real that Christ came down and took possession of me. <laughs> I love that. He came down and took possession of me. And that's supposed to happen for us, um, for sinners who come hungry. Let me finish with this. Those of us who grew up in a Christian home, uh, we, we said grace before meals, right? You bow your head before every meal. You never, you never fail to do it. Every single meal, your family prayers, you bow your heads and, and you say grace. And that prayer was, uh, was a means of recognizing God's kind provision for our lives, his, his sustenance. And Well, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're not just saying grace. We're receiving grace. We are receiving grace. Like, this is the grace of God for the people of God. This is the food of God for the people of God. It, and I just want to say to you, if you, I mean, most of us at any given time, spiritually, we're not doing very well. Like, we, we feel pretty inept. We, we feel pretty dry, especially in this cultural moment. We feel like Israel in the wilderness. If you feel like you are in the wilderness and you are dying of hunger and thirst, like, come to the bread of life. Eat, eat, Eat the, eat, he says, eat my, eat my body, eat my flesh, for my flesh is, is true food and my blood is true drink. Come and receive the bread of life. You know, if you're feeling just spiritually blah, if you're feeling down in the dumps, if you have the accuser breathing down your neck with all kinds of guilt and shame, listen to love bid you to come, to come and take up the cup of salvation. To, to drink from the cup of salvation and to know that he, he drank from the bitter cup so that you would drink from the cup of salvation. You know, I just want you to see that nothing comforts you like, like our Savior. You know, nothing motivates you like the grace of God, our Savior. And there is no peace like the peace that comes from Jesus. So um, every week, come to the table hungry. And as you taste the bread and you drink the cup and you receive the riches of his grace by faith, by faith, look around the sanctuary at your brothers and sisters. Don't just only look at the bread and the wine. Look at each other and say, this is the body of Christ. Like, I, I'm committed. I'm committed to trying to, my best, take care of the people in this room. It's not a, not a very packed room. We can do that, right? 30 to 40 of us, we can... Look around at your brothers and sisters, at your spiritual family, and, and realize we're sharing this delight together. And then finally, you know, ask God to bring others to the table. Um, because there, there is, there's room in this room, isn't there, for others to come to the table? And there's, there's always room at the Father's table for more. And um, amen.